Our Father and our God, we indeed delight in the fact that you are, you have an ear that's attuned to the cries of your people. We find ourselves with no other place to turn on numerous occasions. We find that there is no sympathetic ear that wants to hear the groanings of our soul except yours. And so, Father, um, accept our praise this morning in the name of Jesus Christ. It does not come in any other way, any other name. We would not dare saunter into your presence thinking that we deserve to be there. We don't deserve it. We come based upon the merit that Christ has provided for us, and on that we stand, and from there we offer our praise. Lord, again, we, we, um, we discover things about our world each new week which, which frighten us, things that are going on all over the world, riots in France and murders in Baghdad and killings of Christian converts in Afghanistan and, and all kinds of wickedness. And we um, here in Germantown are so isolated from it. And yet, oh God, probably not forever. And I pray that the church of Jesus Christ might find herself quickened and, and renewed. Called to something bigger and better than, than athletics or career. Or neighborhood approval. Remind us, O oh God, that what's at stake is the everlasting condition and souls of men. And stir us to a greater sense of our responsibility and our fervor to see the Great Commission accomplished. O oh God, um, we thank you for how you blessed us financially. Not only do we or can we give what we're giving this morning, but we got plenty left. This is a small portion of the of the great uh, reservoir that you have provided for us, and out of that that great substance, it is our privilege to give it. Thank you, thank you that we're in the position that we can give and not take. But we're glad to give, oh God. Might you see it as an expression of our love for you and our commitment to follow you. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you. All right. Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them to Genesis chapter 28. Let's continue our study of the life of Jacob. Actually, you might recall that what we're trying to do is we're trying to study the, the subject of grace through the lens offered us. By the life of Jacob. That's what we're up to. Now, um, in interest of trying to shorten the text just a little, I'm going to read you verses 1 and 2, and then I'm going to jump down to verse 10 and then read through the end of the chapter. Okay? Stay with me. Uh, Genesis chapter 28 at verse 1. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Patamaram. To the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. Verse 10. 
Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and laid down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you, your offspring, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. I want to start by telling you a story this morning about, a, well, I'd love to call him a friend of mine. He's really not. He's, a, he's somebody that I admire a, a great deal. Uh, his name is Robbie Zacharias. You might know that name. He's probably one of the foremost apologetes in the world today. The reason I start with Robbie is because he's Indian. And, you know, I've just come back from India, and so I'm kind of big into India stuff. So let me tell you about Robbie. This is a story that he, t- he includes in one of his books. It's about his own conversion. Um, the story he tells is that uh, out of the blue one day, his sister was invited to go to a, a youth event, a Christian youth event, and his sister invited him to go along with him. So he consented, and they went to this youth event, and the man who was speaking that night was speaking from John 3.16. And Robbie said, you know, I really was raised around the church, but I really didn't think that the church had much to say about life, you know. And, and uh, you know, all, the, all that he said was good, but I didn't get it all. The language, I, I, you know, I wasn't familiar with the language. Uh, and, and none of what he said really meant much to me. Um, but I knew that my life was wrong. And, and I knew that I needed somebody to make it right. I wanted new loves. I wanted new uh, desires and values and goals. And, and, and underneath it all, I knew that God had to matter. But I just didn't know how to find him. And so he left that youth event that night. Um, and, and stuck in his mind, is it was the notion that... There was, there was really something right about the message that he had heard that night, but he really didn't, really didn't, hadn't figured it all out. He, and, and right after that youth event, or a couple days after it, uh, something very significant happened. He was riding his bicycle um, uh, alongside a Hindu cremation site. I saw some of those. 
Um, and the Hindu priest was standing there cremating a body, and um, he stopped his bicycle, got off his bicycle, went to the Hindu priest and said, where is that person that you just cremated now? And the Hindu priest said, son, uh, that's a question that you'll be asking all of your life, and you never will know for sure. And so he rode away, and he thought, <laughs> if that's the best that he can do, what, what, what hope is there for someone you know, stiff like me? Over the next few months, he began to lose more and more of a sense of meaning. And um, in the midst of that, he made a pretty significant decision. He was going to kill himself. And so he put his plan into motion and attempted suicide. And he found himself, he woke up in a hospital bed in a hospital, and somebody had brought a Bible in and was reading the Bible to him. And they were reading from John. Not John 3, but John 14, you know, that great statement about I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. He said, but that wasn't the text that really grabbed my attention. It was later on in that same text where Jesus says, because I live, you will live also. And he said, I didn't understand what that meant either completely because I knew it had to mean more than just physical life. But he is, as he lay on the bed there in the hospital having... Recovered from a suicide attempt, he started thinking about the message that he had heard earlier on John 3.16 and kind of put the two of those things together, something about the love of God and that, and that Christ was the way to that. And, and he made his commitment to Jesus Christ there in the bed in a hospital right after having tried to kill himself. And then he goes on to become perhaps one of the, most foremost, the foremost spokesmen of um, apologetics in the world today. Now, guys, the reason I told you that story is not really because he's Indian. The reason I told you that story is because it's a story about conversion. And um, most people who write about the book of Genesis, most of the commentaries, authors, whatever, the scholars who comment about the book of Genesis, suggest that Genesis 28, what I just read you, is the story of Jacob's conversion. Um, Kent Hughes, Derek Kidner, John Phillips, guys like that, all agree that what you've got in Genesis 28 is a record of Jacob's conversion. Now, before I go any further, you know, uh, there's a lot of folks that, uh, alive today who are saying, that's a problem with you Christians. You're always trying to convert people. Why don't you just leave people alone and, and uh, you know, you go your way, let us go our way, and, and we'll just be happy, uh, you know, leaving each other alone. Now, surely you're not that naive, ladies and gentlemen. Surely you understand that everybody's out to convert you. The Republicans are out to convert you and the Democrats. The, um, the gay pride movement's trying to convert you, and, and humanism's trying to convert you, and relativism's trying to convert you, and, and evolution's trying to convert you. They're all trying to convert you. We're not the only ones, but ladies and gentlemen, indeed... At the center of the Christian experience is a conversion. Now, the reason that people say that, uh, the, the reason that the scholars say that Genesis 28 is his conversion, there's two things that they point to. First of all is that dream uh, in verses 12 through 15. Um, you know, the, the angels ascending in the ladder and all that business. Now, you probably already know this, but... Later on in the New Testament, in John chapter 1, the ladder is identified. 
that the latter, John 151, is identified as Christ. Um, and in this dream, Jacob understands that there is a connector. A connector between earth and heaven. That, uh, that heaven becomes real for him and he sees that there's a way to get there. There's a, there's a connection in this ladder. And then, of course, later on, John identifies the ladder. Now, the dream is so shocking for Jacob, we're told that in verse 16, that it, it awakens him. You know, you've had a dream like that, that just kind of stirs you in the night and wakens you. And, and um, because for the first time in his life, he sees heaven as a real place. And he even thinks that he's there. He calls the place Bethel, the house of God. And he says something about this being heaven's gate. Uh, he was wrong. Uh, he was wrong like, uh, you remember that cult that was called the Heaven's Gate cult? Uh, 1997, Marshall Applewhite, who led all of his uh, followers, 39 of them, to commit suicide in a rented home outside of San Diego. Remember that? It was in conjunction with the Hale-Bopp Comet. And uh, they all, uh, they died in shifts. 39 of them committed suicide in one house, a rented house, as I said. And they, they were all stacked in um, bunk beds. They, they died in shifts. They, uh, they ate applesauce that was laced with phenobarbital and drank vodka. That'll do it to you every time. And they were all lying neatly in these, these bunk beds, all with identical Nike running shoes on. Well, they were wrong too. That wasn't Heaven's Gate. And this is not Heaven's Gate either. But Jacob is shook by this dream, this vision that he's had. And, and that's one of the reasons that the authors say this is his conversion. The other reason is that he makes a vow, a commitment. You'll see it unfolding in verse 20. It's a very weak one. And we'll come back to that. Um, as weak as it is, it is a vow. It is a commitment. And those are the two factors that lead the authors to conclude that this is a story of Jacob's conversion. I'm convinced. I agree. But here's what I want to do this morning. I want to look at Jacob's conversion, make some observations about what happens to him. And then I want to fast forward and try to make some kind of application as to what conversion ought to mean to us. So let's look first at Jacob's conversion. Several little features about it that I want you to notice. First of all, Jacob is not seeking God. God is seeking him. Uh, it is God who initiates this whole thing, folks. Just like in the Garden of Eden, you know that story about Adam and Eve doing the bad thing and then and then they don't run to God to ask forgiveness. They run away from God and hide in the bushes. And in the Garden of Eden, who is it that seeks whom? It is God who seeks Adam and Eve. It's always been like that. It continues to be like that, folks. It is God who is the seeker. Um, A.W. Tozer calls this prevenient grace. That is, grace that is previous. There, there is nothing, there is nothing that Jacob did to earn this visitation from God. Do you see any merit here? In fact, you see the very opposite. You see demerit. The only thing that Jacob is doing is sleeping. 
and God comes to get him. God is the initiator. That's the first thing that you see in Jacob's conversion. Secondly, the language that you see in verse 11, the sun had set. Gang, that's pregnant language. That's language that means more than just the sun just went down. That, that image is used throughout the scriptures. You'll find it in John 13 when the, and they went out and it was night. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a metaphor of things that are distressing. Things that are dark. Well, the sun had set on Jacob. I'll say he's, um, he's completely cut off from his family. He's out in the wilderness. He's away from home. He's, he's, wifeless and thus childless. I, I guess I guess we can say that about this culture. We can't say it about ours. I mean, you don't have to have a wife and a child anymore. But in this culture, he was wifeless and thus childless. He's, he's, uh, he's exhausted. He's discouraged. He's lonely. He's frightened and he's penniless. Penniless? Yeah. He uses a rock for a pillow, folks. Anybody would take their coat off and roll it up and put it under their heads, but he can't even afford a coat. He's at the end of himself. That's the portrait that the narrator would have you get of Jacob. The sun had set on Jacob. Jacob is out of resources. Uh, this is what has come of all of his scheming and his heel grasping. He's in real nowheresville. Remember that song the Beatles sang? Remember that one? He's a real nowhere man sitting in his nowhere land. Making all his nowhere plans for nobody. That's Jacob. He's out of resources, folks. And that is when God comes to him. When he's out of resources. The third thing I want you to see um, is that if Jacob is to have any hope at all, it's going to be found in that ladder. That is... The, the only hope that Jacob has is something that God has done, and what God has done centers upon that ladder. And the New Testament tells us who the ladder is. And, and I want you to note that there aren't two ladders. There's one ladder. And we're also told that God is not only at the top of it, he's at the bottom of it. Verse 16. Prior to this moment, Jacob had been climbing. He'd been climbing hard. He'd been climbing a ladder that was leaning against the wrong building. Uh, like some of you. Who are climbing all right. You're just climbing, climbing the wrong ladder. But the only hope that he has in somehow, of a, in any kind of connection between earth and heaven is that ladder. Here's the fourth observation. He makes a vow. I've already mentioned that, but there is a vow included in this conversion of Jacob. And as I said earlier, it ain't much a one, but it's a vow. It's the longest vow, the longest recorded vow in the Old Testament, but it really has, it really leaves a lot to be desired. There's two parts to it, and I want to take a minute to show you the two parts. The two parts of this vow. Now, gang, one of the parts is pretty bad. The other one's fairly good. But take a look. Don't forget that it's God who has initiated this. That is, God comes to him while he's on the run. 
Uh, he's outside the promised land. This, uh, he is, is a fugitive. He's, he's a fleeing, a possible assassination by his brother. He's on the run. He's cut off from God's people. And God comes to him then. And here is the essence of what God says to him. Look at it in verse 13. God says, um, uh, the land on which you lie, I will give to you. My point is, guys, the essence of what God says to Jacob is, I will give. Those are the first words of grace that Jacob has heard. Now, gang, the reasons for God giving to Jacob are only to be found in God's mysterious sovereign grace. Because I want you to notice that there is nothing about Jacob that merits this. I can't say that enough. I can't say it often enough. There is nothing about this that Jacob has done to earn God's visitation. God comes to Jacob bearing gifts. But um, receiving gifts is not easy for Jacob. Um, nor is it easy for 21st century people like me and you. Uh, Jacob's response to this offer of gifts is not real good. <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's as if he's quite uncomfortable with God giving him something. Gang, does the name Naaman ring a bell? Naaman the Syrian? Let me tell you about Naaman. Naaman uh, was the general of the Syrian army. Uh, he was very valued by his boss, the king. But Naaman had a problem. He was a leper. And um, in one of Naaman's raids down into Israel, he captures this little Israelitish girl, brings, him back, brings her back to his house and makes her his servant, his domestic. And so one day this little girl says to Naaman, the leper, she says, oh, oh, how I wish that my boss could get a hold of the prophet in Israel, whose name was Elisha. Oh, how I wish Naaman could get down there to, to uh, Elisha. He'd be fine then. And so she tells Naaman that, and Naaman says, um, okay, I'm going. He goes, gets permission from the king, and so they load him up with all kinds of gold and silver and changes of clothes and all. So he heads down to Israel to see Elisha. Elisha hears he's coming. And he says, Elisha the prophet says to his assistant Gehazi, listen, Gehazi, go tell him that the Lord has heard his request and uh, we're going to cleanse you. And here's how you do it. You just go dip seven times in the river Jordan. Remember that story? Just go dip seven times in the Jordan River and you'll be fine. So Elisha, I mean, Naaman comes down. Gehazi goes out, meets him and says, hey, uh, you don't need to come see my boss, uh, Elisha. He's told me to tell you, just go dip seven times in the river Jordan. You'll be clean. And Naaman 
is furious. Furious. He says to Gehazi, what do you mean, dip in the Jordan River? I mean, I thought that Elisha was supposed to come out of his tent and do some wild hocus pocus and then shabam and abracadabra and, and everybody was supposed to do things and, 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 and jump through hoops and there's gonna be this stuff happening and I die. Listen, dipping in the Jordan River. I got rivers in Syria. You see, the, the point is, guys, Naaman, Naaman was good at bearing gifts. He just wasn't good at receiving them. Just like Jacob. This whole idea of God giving them something, giving him something, is is unnerving to Jacob. And so what you see in verse 20 is a very interesting reaction. What Jacob does is that he cuts a deal. Did you notice it? It's pretty ugly. He says, in response to God saying, I will give you, he says, if. Okay, God, I hear what you're saying. Here's what we're doing. Um, if you will do this and you will do that and you will do the other, then, then, uh, then you'll be my God. Gang, that is vintage Jacob. That's, that's Jacob's MO, ladies and gentlemen. He knows how to cut a deal. He cuts a deal with his brother. He cuts a deal with his mother. He'll later on cut a deal with his uncle. That's what he does with God now. So he cuts a deal. He um, he knows how to cut a deal. He just doesn't know how to receive a gift. You know, um, I, I know about making deals with God. I, I go through several of them a day. I, I make deals about my family and about my work and about my health and, and anything else I value. Um, essentially, what I do is that I, um, I offer um, to trust God uh, in all these areas of my life if they turn out the way that I want them to. Which is exactly what faith is not. It doesn't, it doesn't take faith, ladies and gentlemen, to believe in a God who gives me everything that I want to when I want him to give them to me. Faith is a choice by which I trust God because he's trustworthy. Gang, we live in a world of the conditional. The... If we perform well, then we are rewarded. That's the world we know. And that's the message that I get from this world 50 times a day. This is how it works. You do this and I'll do that. If you do this, then you can expect that. 
So for God to come to me or Jacob or anybody else and says that he wants to give me something, I have my doubts about that. <laughs> and, and it's not because I don't like to receive gifts. Oh, I like to receive gifts. But I just don't want God giving me anything. I'd rather earn it. I'd rather deserve it. You know, I, I, I recognize that I'm not a perfect, but I'm, I'm certainly not the worst um, specimen of humanity. But I don't like the idea that I come to the bargaining table with nothing to offer. Okay? How about this? Oh, you bring plenty to the bargaining table. You bring more sin than you care to admit. So getting what you deserve from God is not something that you ever want to ask. Don't ever ask God to give you what you deserve. We're more like Jacob than we care to admit, I think. Grace is hard for us. Performance is something we understand. But confronting a God that wants to give his gifts away, it's rather unnerving. Now, that's, that's the first part of his commitment that's not real good. Let me show you the second part, which is a little bit better. Right at the end of the chapter, he says, and all that you give me, I'll give you a tenth. The other part of his commitment has to do with his money. <laughs> um, and I want you to note that this has nothing to do with law. The law doesn't come for another 400 years. Jacob responds like this, not because he had to, but because he gets to. There is no hint here of, I'll give you in order to get the things that I want. Guys, that's buying, or that's investing. And, and the issue has not, I mean, the whole idea of a tenth is, is just something that Jacob used. He didn't get that from some kind of church code book. Gang, if I get asked one more time whether it's 10% on net or 10% on gross, I think I'll croak. Do you realize that 100% of everything that you've got came from this God? This isn't about some business deal that we're trying to hammer out with God. Giving is an expression of our love and gratitude. And until it becomes that to you, giving will always be law. It will always be hard. Now, those are some features about the conversion of Jacob. Let me close by making five applications about other conversions besides Jacob's. First of all, 
If Jacob's life demonstrates anything at this point about conversion, it is this much. It is that we cannot buy a blessing. We cannot earn a blessing. We cannot make one happen. All you can do with this God is receive things. Secondly, faith in its beginning can be terribly small. In those early days of having been converted, it's going to be hard perhaps to detect that there's really a change that's gone on. It doesn't look all that beautiful in the beginning. Third, folks, you don't meet Jesus in the place where you are in control. You meet him at the end of your resources. In, in order to follow this Christ, guys, you're going to have to leave something behind. And whatever it is that Jesus is calling you to leave, that thing is your most cherished source of identity. And for this crowd, quite often, it is our own sense of success a sense that we really don't have any needs that we ourselves can't meet. Now, guys, that's not true every place in the world. You, you, one of the refreshing things about going on mission trips is you discover a whole new brand of folk who are very aware that their needs are way beyond them. But when you slip back into where we live, it is rare to find men and women who are at the end of their resources. But that's where you meet him. When you finally come to the place where you recognize, I have a need that can't be met by anyone other than that ladder. Fourth, I want you to hear, I want you to hear once again God's promise to his people. He says this, I am with you and will bring you, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Guys, that's God's commitment to us. God takes a trip on the part of Jacob. He takes a trip that was designed to run from his brother that wanted to kill him and to find a suitable wife for his parents, that is, that his parents would approve. He takes that trip and he turns it into a spiritual pilgrimage that concludes at the top of the ladder. 
He makes that commitment to Jacob. And he makes that commitment to all of his people. Listen again to it. I will never leave you nor forsake you. As far as my commitment to him is concerned, you know, my commitment is not really something I make so much as it is something that I receive. Most of the time, you know, you're not even, you're not even asked if you want it. It just comes as a gift, ready or not. It comes as a gift of God's grace. Like most everything else about God's grace, what he gives you is going to mold you and shape you. It's going to change your life. It starts small, but then it takes over. The New Testament says it's like yeast when you put a tablet of yeast in a pile of dough. It starts small, but then it takes the whole thing over. That's what grace does, folks. It takes you over. The the fifth lesson, I think, for us is this. You're not born this way. Guys, if anybody could have claimed familial heritage, it would have been Jacob. I mean, he's got the Abraham and Isaac as his, uh, in his, as his grandfather and father. But Jacob wasn't born converted. You don't get born into this. You become one of these. You get converted. When you finally see that there's only one place that will connect Only one thing that will connect earth and heaven. Jesus Christ. You know, guys, um, the reason that I started off with that story about Ravi Zacharias, I've been to India. (laughs) And all that stuff that you see in Newsweek and a magazine and on the CNN cable news and all that business about how things are turning around in India... I didn't see any of it. None of it. Zero of it. I was in a city of seven million. I didn't see one smidgen of that. None of it. None of it. And to think that this God could go find an Indian man whose name is Ravi and call him out of that. And make him into this. If he can do that. If he can do something like that with you and me. Start small. And then it takes over. Is that in any way familiar to you? Our Father, I do thank you for these um, occasions where we can examine your word and hopefully derive 
uh, insights that will change us forever, that will leave us not uh, forlorn and forsaken and disillusioned, but will open our eyes to see that there is a connection between heaven and earth. Uh, that, that one who has bridged that everlasting gap is the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so, oh God, draw us to that ladder. Draw us to that place. Draw us to the one who alone can rid us of our sense of forsakenness and lostness and confusion. And then, oh God, do to us just a portion of what you did with the Jacobs of the world and the the Ravis of the world. Do that to us. For Jesus' sake. Amen.